Amen, amen. I will go ahead and encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That is where we have been for the last several weeks. And uh, Ephesians, obviously, is where we've been for quite some time now. But uh, Ephesians 4 in particular, we've been there for the last several weeks. And we'll wrap up chapter 4 this morning. And as you're turning there, I also want to encourage you, we will be taking Lord's Supper at the end of this morning's sermon. So you should find those Lord's Supper materials in the pew in front of you. Just go ahead and take observation of that. Make sure you have enough for you and your family. And uh, if you need to reach down the pew or to the pew in front of you, you can go ahead and do that as well. And then at that that time, if you have a child in the nursery, I will uh, kindly ask you at that time to go ahead and go get your child so that our nursery workers can join us for the Lord's Supper as well. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4, and we've been talking for the last several weeks on this topic of holiness. In fact, last week's sermon uh, was titled, Walk Holy. The sermon before that was Walk United. And this week, as we come to the end here of chapter 4, this sermon in particular is titled Walk Holy United Together. All right, so you can see how clever I am in my sermon headlines. But uh, why is this topic of holiness so important for us to spend Three weeks out of an entire sermon series talking about the pursuit of holiness in our walk with Christ. Why is it so crucial that we consider our pursuit of holiness? That we take uh, take inventory, so to speak, of how we are doing in this area. Of how are we being intentional to pursue holiness and walk holy and submit to the Lord's work in our lives in that way. Because just as in Paul's day, in a world that is completely broken and fallen by sin, there is no shortage of ways for us to become so comfortable with darkness while appearing to be in the light. And that was on full display last week as we looked at verses 17 through 24. But now as we turn our attention to these last remaining verses of chapter 4, verses 25 through 32... What uh, I want us to see is that it can be all too easy for us to justify away the sins which we lavish in, all the while casting aside those who struggle with much more popular sins. Lastly, it's important for us to discuss holiness because that is exactly what Jesus bought for us on the cross. And that's the significance of us taking the Lord's Supper today is observing and remembering that in His sacrifice, He purchased for us our holiness that we may be made right before a just and holy God. He paid the price that we might be made holy, the holy workmanship of God, as Paul refers to it. This will be our emphasis in taking the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today. So I want us to feel the importance of living with intentionality, battling the flesh, and pursuing holiness with all that we are. I don't ever want us to become numb to the things of the Lord while allowing the things of the world to become so invigorating to us or buying into the lie that the things of the world can in some way satisfy us. The irreverence with which our world treats the things of God never ceases to amaze. And that is why 
we must never cease to challenge ourselves in pursuit of holiness so that our discernment may grow. So that we may able, be able to rightly discern between what is good and right and holy and on that narrow path and to be able to discern what is leading us away from that path. And so if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, my prayer is that we would leave here uncomfortable. That we would leave here uncomfortable in our sin, but encouraged by grace. And if you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, my prayer for you is the same. And my prayer for you is that you would respond by seeking humble repentance for that sin and to walk in the way that God has called you. I'll encourage you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Ephesians 4. And our text this morning is verses 25 through 32. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work for his, with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that it would provide uh, a fresh meaning to us and it would fall fresh on our hearts and that it would convict us in a new and fresh way. God, as we seek you through your word, we ask that you would move us. Move us to be uncomfortable with sin Move us to have a passion for holiness and move us to be at war with the things of this world that so easily entangle us. God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray that you would bind them in their wandering, convict them too of their sin, but move them to obedience through repentance to believe by grace through faith. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So real quick, as we pick back up here in verse 25, I want to remind us where we left off in this continued discussion on holiness and where we left off last week. So last week we saw, as we started off in verse 17, where we see Paul say, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So there we, we drew that distinction that he's not talking about Gentiles by ethnicity, but Gentiles in their behavior, because he's speaking to those who are Gentile in eth ethnicity. And so there we, we began our point with seeing that living with eager obedience produces a testimony within us of radical transformation. 
And the clear distinction that I wanted to draw there last week is that the radical nature of our transformation in Christ does not come from the radicalness of the sin that he captured us from. Because we all have different testimonies of what sin he rescued us from and then what sins we struggled to combat and and put to death since then. But rather the radical nature of our transformation comes in that he has brought us from death to life. And so if we are in Christ, there can be no doubt as to the direction that we are walking. That if we have been brought from death to life, we will live as those who have new life. For to be in Christ means to be transformed. And so to walk worthy is to walk regenerate, is what we saw last week. And this makes the truth of the gospel divisive by nature, was one of the things that we pulled out. Meaning that we are either in Christ or of this world, and that we cannot find any sort of happy medium in that, or or some lukewarm comfortability in that, that you are in Christ or of the world. And Paul categorizes it in this way here in Ephesians. Those who are callous of heart and those who are in Christ. And for Jesus, it was sheep and goats. Those who love light and those who love darkness. And so we wrapped up last week seeing that the worthy walk is distinctly marked by a relentless pursuit of holiness. And so in continuing with that, we pick back up here in verse 25. And Paul continues this idea as we see that word, therefore, which we see so many times. It's so characteristic of Paul's writing and referring back to what he's previously said and linking all of these ideas together and showing this progression of this walk. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so Paul has drawn for us clear lines of demarcation. Those who are in Christ are marked by a distinct and intentional action of taking off the old self and putting on Christ. Now we begin to see the pointed results of this new life in Christ. Now we begin to see the challenge from Paul of if indeed you have put on Christ, if indeed you have found this new life, been drawn by God's grace to faith in him, then this is the results of a life. This is the fruit of a life that is put on Christ. And so he begins with that famous word, therefore, linking us to everything that he said. So if the fruit of the old life is so evident, and all of us can attest to how we know when we are in the flesh, how we know that which is of this world and that which is of God. If the fruit of the old life is so evident, Well, then once we put off that old life and begin to walk in the new, then that too should be clearly evident in how we live. So notice how Paul clearly classifies this as an action which has already happened. So it's an expectation. Therefore, having put away falsehood, you've already done that when you put on Christ. So when we put on Christ, we put away, we put to death that sins which we relished in and lavished in in the old life. 
Now, does that mean that new things do not creep in? Does that mean that Satan does not corrupt and and seek after to to pull us off the path and begin to struggle with new sins as new darkness creeps in? Absolutely not. But those things which we once walked in in that old life have been put off when we put on Christ. And so there can be no mistaking that you can't have one arm in that new clothing of Christ and still one arm in the old self. Because otherwise that just looks ridiculous. In which we oftentimes make ourselves look ridiculous when we allow these sins to creep back in. If one is truly in Christ, having put on the new self, then their lifestyle should accurately reflect this transformation. And this is the reality which we have to come to grips to. Is that if we are in Christ, then our lifestyle, how we respond to our sin, how we respond to sin in general, will accurately reflect this transformation. The core truth here is that our lifestyle is inherently tied to our identity. Whether that is our identity of the old self, our our lifestyle will accurately reflect that. Or if it's the identity of the new self in Christ, our identity, our lifestyle will accurately reflect that. If our identity is in ourselves and the things of this world, the pursuit of passions and pleasures, that will be accurately reflected. But this is not the way we learned Christ, as Paul has stated. Therefore, having put away falsehood, it's already happened. The most accurate reflection of my regeneration, and this is our first point this morning, the most accurate reflection of my regeneration is not a testimony of past experience, but it's my testimony of present fruit. That if I want an accurate depiction and I want to take accurate reflection on how my regeneration is going, how am I reflecting Christ, how am I growing in Christ, then the the testimony I need is not what Christ did in bringing me from death to life, but it's how is that being lived out in my life right now? Or am I attempting to put on those dirty old clothes of the old self? Am I allowing new things to creep in? If I need an accurate reflection of my regeneration... I don't need to reflect back on a past experience, but my testimony of what that looks like now. See, all too often we focus entirely on our testimony of what Christ has done in our life. The undeniable reality of our life in Christ is that our present fruit reflects what he has already done in our life. And so when we take inventory of our walk, when we see, are we walking worthy? as we began this chapter with. If we are walking worthy, then the present fruit in our life will accurately reflect and bear testimony to that. This means that as we are in Christ, we are not only intentionally pursuing holiness, but also intentionally putting away and taking off and constantly casting aside anything in our flesh that is trying to creep back in. As we are doing that battle, We are intentionally pursuing holiness and intentionally casting off that old self which attempts to to creep back in or those new sins which attempt to 
take hold of us. The life of those in Christ is not a passive pursuit of holiness. We cannot actively pursue Christ if we think we can just passively sit back. I've come to faith. So I, I, just, I can just enjoy. I can just sit in the pew and, and hear God's word. I can just sit and then go about life just passively as I want to. No, the life of those in Christ is not a passive pursuit, rather an active advance. That's why we see this language of a present walk. It is a continuation Paul uses this illustration time and again. But what did John exhort believers with in 1 John 2, 3 through 6? 1 John 2, 3 through 6. You can write that down or it'll be on the screen for you. But we see there, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So how do we know if we come to know Him? Are we pursuing obedience to His Word? Are we actively seeking to live out as he has called us to? Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So not only does Paul use this illustration of continuation of walking and of growing and continuing in the faith, but here we see John doing the same thing. We have John using the same illustration of walking to demonstrate the advance of the Christian life toward holiness. What are we growing toward? How are we growing? This is what the present fruit in our life is bearing testimony to. Either we are stagnating or we are walking with the Spirit and walking in our pursuit of holiness. Paul also offers these words to the churches of Galatia. In Galatians 5, 7, if you just want to write that off to the side there. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There, Paul is specifically talking about the allowance of false teaching and false prophets to creep into the church and, and infect the church. But you see, he's using this same illustration of running and obeying the truth, of pursuing holiness. And that when we allow anything to creep in that would distract us from that, that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So what is the fruit that Paul is inferring should be produced by those who have put on the new self in Christ? We see here, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. For Paul, those who have put on the new self have put off falsehood and instead walk in truth. Now you might be thinking to yourself, that's it? Falsehood? Because what does falsehood mean? I mean, essentially, you get down to it, it means lying. But you might be thinking to yourself, lying? That's it? That's, I mean, that's the problem here? But the issue is that lying in the context of community 
And lying in the sense that Paul is talking about here allows unchecked sin to become permissible. Because notice the results. Putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. So he's not just talking about speaking the truth in financial transactions or speaking the truth in how you're dealing with your neighbor and property line disputes or you know what your dog did to their property or whatever. He's not talking about just these, these little petty arguments between speaking the truth to your neighbor. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. So this is in the context of the community of the church. When we allow unchecked sin and we falsely lie and don't allow ourselves to speak accountability into the lives of our brothers and sisters or allow our brothers and sisters to speak accountability truthfully into our lives, holding us accountable to the truth of God's word, we allow unchecked sin to become permissible. And when we allow unchecked sin in our lives, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. When we allow unchecked sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, we exponentially multiply this to allow exchanging the truth of God for a lie on a communal scale. So then it's not just infecting us, but we're infecting the entire church when we do not speak the truth to one another. This is why I want us to see that Paul intentionally brings this exhortation to holiness in his discussion of unity and community. Because holiness is pursued in the context of community. Lying gets to the root of our sin because lying is Satan's main weapon. You go all the way back to Genesis. He is the cruel deceiver. What did he do with Adam and Eve? He deceived them to buy into the lie that God's innate character was not good. He deceived them to buy into the lie that they could be like God. This has been and continues to be at the root of indwelling sin that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Worshiping the created over the creator. So don't mistake this address to falsehood as just some simple issue of white lie, uh, white lies going about the church and such. The important here is of speaking the truth to our neighbor goes beyond the matters of small disputes or small little white lies. This is speaking the truth in regards to living according to God's word. But this isn't the only matter which Paul addresses. As we see, we still have several verses to go. So as this is a pattern that he employs throughout this exhortation. So let's move on. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So this section here of you know, verses 25 through 32, it's, it's marked by a repeating pattern of exhortation. So Paul is giving these just repeated sentences. Sometimes they're one sentence or they're multiple, but uh, he's giving these repeated patterns of exhortation. So in the previous sentence in verse 25, you see he stated the action as something that has already taken place in the life of the believer. Now we transition to five repeating exhortations of things that believers are to be actively growing in, in terms of our faith. 
and how our faith controls our conduct. Within each of these exhortations, we've got three elements. So here's the pattern, right? So you have a negative command and a positive command. So the negative command meaning not like telling them to do something negative, but telling them to stop doing something negative. So you have a negative command and then you have a positive command. And then you have the result of what happens in our lives when we live according to the positive command. So this first exhortation begins with the positive command of be angry and do not sin. See, that's positive because he's telling them to do it. And then the negative command is do not sin. So now you might think to yourself, how could be angry be a positive command? Like what, where's Paul going with that? How could be angry be a positive to man, command? Now I want us to consider this. The particular word here for anger or for being angry is orgizomai. All right, now don't, don't, get, don't lose me right there. It's one of a few different forms of our word anger. So there were several Greek words that could communicate different types of anger, different contexts of anger, different responses of anger. Now the corresponding word for this orgizomai in the Old Testament appears 61 times. Of those 61 times, 22 times, it refers to a person's anger. All right, so that's to be expected. You know, we're, we're fragile. We know, we know that we get angry. But it appears 39 times in reference to God's anger. Now, when God expresses anger in the Old Testament, what's it against? Disobedience, sin, unfaithfulness, not living according to to his commands, not living to the standard of holiness which he has set and purchased and made available for his people through his law in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. How has he made that available to us? Through the person of Jesus. God's anger stems from his love for a people who do not worship him as they should. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God discipline his people for the express purpose of turning their worship back to a proper reverential fear of him. So, when you read this exhortation to anger, this is not inviting us to a life of rage. Paul's not saying it's okay to get angry about every little thing. I've had to struggle with that this week myself. No, he's inviting anger toward a life of frustration with sin. So, be angry and do not sin. This brings us to our next point. The pursuit of holiness shapes us to reflect Christ-like character. It's important that we make a crucial distinction at this moment because as Christians, we pursue holiness not in an effort to earn God's acceptance or approval. Our pursuit of holiness is not for the sake of trying to do better so that God would love us more. We are accepted by God because of Christ's obedience. Our eager obedience, therefore, and our pursuit of holiness is but an overflowing response of worship. 
So don't get this entire three weeks of talking about pursuing holiness. Don't mistake that for meaning that we just have to, as, as I said a couple of weeks ago, white knuckle it, do better, try better, try harder. And then somehow earning God's approval. When I say pursuit of holiness, the emphasis is not on our efforts, but on the Spirit's working in us, in our sanctification. That the moment we put on the new self, we are the workmanship of Christ. That then begins a life of pursuing the lifestyle of that work. So that as he is shaping us and molding us, as we're doing battle with the old self and constantly casting off the old self and putting on Christ, therefore we are seeking to reflect Christ-like character. When Jesus got angry and overthrew the, the temple tables, it was because of the unsanctimonious and unreligious manner in which they had turned the temple into this area of greed and self-promotion. So what do we do with passages like James 1.19? You might be thinking to yourself. We have this command from Paul, be angry and do not sin. Well, in James 1.19, we see Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So some might think that these two passages contradict one another. However, they simply just present different paths to the same idea, which is reflecting the character and nature of God. Because there is an anger that is righteous, anger that is disciplined, measured, and controlled, and this type of anger is what is reflected by God. This type of righteous anger leads to accountability, guards holiness, and motivates growth. And then, on the other hand, there's man's anger. Man's anger is not like this. Man's anger is vindictive, cruel, self-serving, quickly tempered. There's nothing inherently or sinfully wrong about anger itself. It is the anger of the flesh, though, which allows a festering foothold for the enemy to deceive and disrupt us. Church, if we're pursuing holiness as we are called, then we will be angry about the things that anger God. Not angry in the fleshly sense, the unbridled, self-serving, festering anger, but rather a passionate, focused, controlled anger that stems from our love of God and others. This is the type of anger which Paul is encouraging and exhorting the church to display. Because along with this, the primary place which we must be ready to channel that righteous, controlled anger is not toward the sin of others, but toward our own sin. That's the primary place. That we start with being angry with our own sin. The own sin which so easily entangles us. When we are appropriately angry with our own sin, then we can focus that anger toward encouraging our brother or our sister by speaking the truth in love and spurning them to pursue holiness. As this is the idea that we're seeing here, this movement. Put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
So don't allow that, that manly, fleshly anger to, to fester and sit within you. Give no opportunity for the devil. Verse 28, as we continue reading. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So again, here we have another exhortation, the same pattern that we have that moves throughout each one of these exhortations. And again, this is the pursuit, the, the fruit of holiness in our life, the fruit of putting on Christ. And in this one in particular, we see this clear identity of the sinful self of the thief. So he who is identified as or whose identity takes on their life of sinfulness. But he says, let this thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. So there we have the negative command of don't do this anymore. The positive command, rather let him labor. And then the fruit of doing that, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The context again being community. That as we pursue holiness... Yes, we do so at an individual level, but we do so individually together, united as his church. So there we see the repetition of this pattern, the, the negative command, the positive command results. Here I want us to focus not so much on the exhortation because this one is pretty straightforward. There's no hidden meaning there. Let the thief no longer steal. You're not going to find a hidden meaning there. It means what it sounds like, right? So this one is pretty straightforward, but that's not to say that it's not important. But the overarching message in addressing these things is this. The pursuit of holiness produces actions which line up with our new identity. That's the next point this morning. The pursuit of holiness produces actions which line up with our new identity. So this, this person, the, the old self, is the thief. But when you put off the old self and you put on Christ, let the thief no longer steal. Your identity is no longer in that, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So the principle there to apply for us is, are our actions lining up with our new identity in Christ? If our lives were once characterized by a self-indulgent sinfulness, the moment we believe in Christ, then that ceases to be. We are no longer characterized by our flesh, rather by Christ himself. This is what we see as we continue reading this repetition of entreaties uh, character which is consistent among those who are in Christ. Verse 29, pick back up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And this is one that is hard for us. To allow all of our speech to be seasoned with grace. All you, the only person you need to ask if this one is hard is ask the pastor's wife if this one is hard to follow. Please don't actually ask her because I mean, she'll probably gladly tell you how I've struggled with that this week, right? This week alone. 
Those who are in Christ and reflecting the character of Christ do not allow petty indifferences to fester into willful anger that destroys unity. So don't let talk come out of your mouths that corrupts and corrodes and infects the unity which Christ has paid such a high price to bring together. Are my words a corrupting and corrosive acid? Or are they like a solvent that breaks down rust and corrosion so that restoration can occur? Do my words build up? Or am I constantly fitting in digs and jabs that are steadily tearing down? Are my words fitting for the occasion? Am I paying attention to not only what I say, but when I say it? Or am I the type of person who arrogantly states, I tell it like it is. There's no sugarcoating with me. Because there's a distinction between telling the truth in grace and love and constantly having an open spigot of harsh criticism no matter how true it may be. And this is the challenge in Paul's exhortation here. Are you speaking the truth? Yes, but are you speaking the truth in a corrupting and corrosive way that needs to be controlled? See, the pursuit of holiness produces the reciprocation of grace. Because that's the Encouragement there at verse 29 at the end. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So when people hear you talk, do they hear the grace of God coming from your encouragement or even those times when you are challenging them? Are you challenging them by speaking the truth in love? This is a hard line to walk sometimes, but it's one which we must intentionally pay careful attention to. We must weigh out our words carefully. As we move on, we see verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So we see there this verse appears as its own sentence, but the, the conjunction and ties it to the preceding thought, right? So this verse has tripped up many. Many people just can't wrap their minds about What could it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? How, what is the, the meaning here? I, I hope I can provide some sense of clarity and the same clarity which I once sought. So we first need to determine the meaning of grieve, right? So the reality here is that there's no secretive meaning to grieve. To grieve in the first century, to grieve in the Old Testament, carries the same meaning for us as it did then. To feel deep sorrow and anguish and lament. So we see the same word here being used to describe the disciples grieving over the death of Jesus. The rich young ruler, as he went away from Jesus he, Jesus, he went away grieving. The corresponding word, the, the corresponding Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament 
when Joseph told his brothers not to grieve over what they had done to him. And when David lost his son Absalom, that corresponding word is used. So grieving means to grieve. I mean, don't, don't let that part trip you up. So what would it look like to grieve the person of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's quickly look at the full context of what Paul has already laid out for us just in Ephesians alone when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13 through 14 of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, we see that for those who are saved, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation and the guarantee of our inheritance. And in fact, Paul reminds us of that very same thing here in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit is with those who have put on Christ. Those who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit with them. Therefore, we know that we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. And he is with us as our guide and our helper. We know from verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 1. That the Spirit provides wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him. So not only is He with us as our helper and our guide, He helps us understand God's Word so that we may know Him and live according to it. Which allows us to have even the smallest grasp of God's infinitely great hope and power in Christ. We know from chapter 2, verse 20, that the Spirit unites us in access to the Father. And in chapter 2, verse 22, we see that the church, that's us, is being made into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in other words, it is the Spirit who is walking with us, guiding us, sharpening us, uniting us together for God's glory. In chapter 3, verse 16, we see that the Spirit strengthens us for this pursuit meaning we need strengthening for that pursuit. We cannot do it on our own. So the Spirit is there to strengthen us in our pursuit of holiness. And in chapter 4, verse 3, we've already seen, we once again see that the Spirit unites us in this pursuit. So therefore, to grieve the Spirit is to be in Christ, but to walk out of step with that new identity. To walk with the Spirit as our guide, but to shun Him in His guiding and sharpening us. To grieve the Spirit is to ignore the Spirit's urging us in holiness. That is why the pursuit of holiness produces a steady submission to the work of the Spirit. That if we are pursuing holiness, we are in steady submission to the work of the Spirit in our lives. So when we cause disunity, when we cause factions and fractions to come within the church, that's grieving the spirit. When we seek to put on the old self, when we have already put on Christ, that is grieving the spirit. When we ignore God's word, which the Spirit gives us knowledge and interpretation of, that is grieving the Spirit. So if we are in Christ and have put on Christ, 
then we must realize that the pursuit of holiness produces steady submission to the work of the Spirit. We must strive to constantly and steadily submit the desires of our flesh to the Spirit's working in our lives. Crucifying the flesh, casting off the flesh, and continuing to keep hold tightly and allowing the Spirit to strengthen us in that pursuit of holiness. This is the worthy walk of the believer, to walk holy, to walk united, and to do so in submission to the Holy Spirit. And as we do so, we see we wrap up verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So these are things which characterize the old self. Bitterness, wrath, anger. (laughs) Ha ha. Do you see that? Be angry, but do not sin. So we have that distinction. Anger, clamor, slander, be put away from you, along with all malice, all those things which are self-seeking, self-indulging, flesh-worshipping. Let that be put away. You have taken that off. Verse 32. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the fruit of the new self, of the new life, always produces and enhances and encourages the unity which Christ has brought for us. So as we pursue holiness, we grow in our unity together. We are shaped as we pursue holiness. We are shaped into a reflection of of God's glory in Christ Jesus by the Spirit to the world. And I want, I want to hammer that home one more time as we wrap up. As we pursue holiness, as we continue to put off the flesh, continue to put off the old self which attempts to creep back in and we put on Christ and we're kind to one another, we're tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us and we're reflecting the grace of God in our speech and we are no longer identified with our old self. As we're doing all this, we are being shaped into a reflection of God's glory in Christ Jesus by the Spirit to the world. So let that be so, church, in your pursuit of holiness. Do not pursue holiness for the sake of putting a badge of honor on your chest or trying to earn God's favor. He has already shown his love for us in Christ. Therefore, our pursuit of holiness is an overflow of worship and a steady submission to the Spirit as he shapes us into his workmanship. Let's pray. God, we love you. As we now prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper in response to the price that you have paid for our holiness, I pray that you would guide us in our submission. That as you shape us into a reflection of your glory, that you would help us to constantly cast off our old way of life as we have put on Christ. So let all those old things be put away from us and that by your spirit we would walk in holiness.
so that we would be a reflection of your glory to the world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.